Welcome to episode 25 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. My name is Stephanie Von Latke, and my co-host, Steve Sademan, will join me soon for an episode called Leading with Compassion, which features Isabelle Francois, President of Women in International Security, Belgium. She'll talk about changing conceptions of leadership during this pandemic crisis. First up, though, Steve and I talk about China, arms control, allusions to a new Cold War, and what Canada's options are in this more competitive environment. At the end of the show, listen to Steve's R&R segment for suggestions on what to read and watch. Thank you for listening. I just want to let you know that we recorded our podcast today just as news was breaking that CAF personnel had noticed abuse and neglect in a number of Ontario elder care facilities and they reported that up the chain and that has now become a major news item that the Prime Minister has addressed and that Doug Ford, the Premier of Ontario, has addressed. We didn't talk about it because it happened uh, while we were recording. Uh, we'll address it in a future episode. Thank you very much. Uh, hey, Stephanie, how you doing? Hi, Steve. I'm doing well. I guess the major change since we last spoke is the weather. After a rather frigid spring, we can spend more time outside. And I know my kids had cabin fever, so I'm very glad about this shift in weather. Have you been taking advantage of this weather or are you trapped in Zoom meetings all day? No, I've, I've got been able to break out my bike and I've been biking around the the area. There are now boats on the canal, so that's always nice to see people boating. There are people on the sides of the canal. I, I live in Barhaven, so I was biking around Manitic. And, and it's really nice to get out. It's really warm. And so it's been a real nice change. I feel a little bit less trapped. My wife has been doing a lot of gardening, although she's been facing a lot of unmasked, aggressive uh, shoppers at the various uh, gardening places in town. Hmm. Uh, so that, that's been a source of stress for her, but I went shopping this morning and I found yeast, so I'm happy. Uh, <laughs> You're in this uh, constant quest for yeast to make your pizzas and your calzones and your bread. Yeah, I haven't been doing much bread lately. Um, it's funny, my family had a, a strange challenge this past week, which was I had spotted a really cool Nigella Lawson chocolate chip cookie dough pot recipe, which is you have a little little you know, almost muffins of, of chocolate chip cookie dough that you're supposed to cook mostly, but not entirely. So that way you have the nice gushy feeling. And I, I think mm. I work with mine a little bit, but they were delicious. Okay. So in a pot, not with pot. No, not with pot. That would be wrong. Well, I guess it's legal now, but no, it was just little ramekins essentially, but I don't have a ramekin. So I had to do it in a muffin pan, but it was really good. And yes, the, the yeast will help me stay in pizza and calzones for as, as far as the foreseeable future. And so I, I will go back to baking, although I'm facing that, that thing now where I'm like, well, maybe I should just be exercising and not making all these sweets. <laughs> well, I remember you had uh, a stationary bike or a treadmill and it was broken last time we spoke. The, my wife fixed her treadmill and now between the <laughs> treadmill and, and the biking outside, I'm getting exercise. And the way I've been uh, thinking about it is I can stress exercise by, uh, to compensate for my stress baking and my stress eating. What have you been doing outside with the kids? 
Well, they've just been playing in the yard. That's a nice uh, safe space for them to jump on the trampoline and, and do a bit of gardening with us. Uh, and for me to shake off the Zoom fatigue, I just go on, on short runs Mm-hmm. Just uh, because we're spending so much time sitting down in front of a screen, I, I really feel like I need more exercise than usual to stay focused. I don't know about you, but I feel like I have more meetings now than I usually do during this time of year. Oh, it's certainly during this time of year because usually you and I are both traveling so we can tell people we can't be at meetings. And uh, my challenge is that at Nipsia, you know, we ha- would have meetings, but the people who are usually most difficult usually don't show up. But now that they can, because everything's online, they do show up. So mm-hmm. it makes meetings a little bit more challenging. But then again, that people can't see me live tweeting or, or doing other things while the meeting's going on. <laughs> so uh, it, it, it all works out. And you're maintaining a connection with friends and family through Zoom as well? Yeah, I've, I've had, I had a really good Zoom last week with my friends from camp in the mid-1980s. It ended wow. up lasting two and a half hours. It was really great to see people I haven't seen in, in literally in decades. On the downside, I'm organizing a Zoom for friends of mine from graduate school because one of our own, Neil Engelhart, died several weeks ago. Uh, I'm not sure if it was COVID-related or not, but he was too healthy to have just had a heart attack. But I, I guess it can happen to anybody. And we just found out yesterday. So we're in the middle of trying to get all the email addresses for everybody who sort of passed through UCSD in the late 80s, early 90s. Neil was a comparativist. He did Southeast Asian politics, always focused on issues related to human rights and sovereignty. And he was he was really a very, not only was he very sharp, but he was also very kind and generous. And what I remember most about him, besides the fact that he was better at racquetball than me, what I remember the most is my first quarter at UCSD, I had a lot of doubts about being in graduate school. The folks around me were super smart. A couple of classes were just really kicking my ass. You know, because I had a connection with him because he went to the same undergraduate uh, institution as I did, and because he was just such a, a sweet, kind, sharp guy, we could talk about those classes, political theory class that had nothing to do with politics, and a comparative politics class that was just stunning in terms of the array of people who were there who had so much a better background than I did in the, in the materials, and a professor who was vampire-like. He made it easier for me to understand what was going on. He made me more comfortable, and so I could survive that first semester or first quarter before I could get to the IR classes in the winter that I felt more comfortable in. So I really owed Neil a huge debt for, for helping me stick around. I, well, I would see him from time to time at conferences. I remember best the ISA in Hawaii in 2005, where he had his family and I had mine. And so his kids got to play with mine. I got to meet his wife, who was also a political scientist. It was good for us to get together then. And I'd seen him since then from time to time, but uh, not nearly as often as I, I would have liked. And I, I think the core message I'd send out to our listeners is appreciate and share your appreciation to the people you know as much as you can, whenever you can, because you don't know when something will get in the way of that. And I uh, will always have a regret not really telling Neil thanks for helping me get through that first uh, three months or so of grad school. I'm very sorry for for your loss, Steve. He uh, seemed to be a very good friend to you and at a critical moment too. I know those first few months of grad school can be difficult. And I'm sure other people also are are suffering losses during this time and, and may feel a little bit powerless because they're not able to connect with friends and families in the way that they normally would. So how are you going about organizing this celebration of life with friends and former people from grad school? Well, that's the the upside of all of this is we've gotten very good at Zoom and, and all the other digital resources. So between Facebook, 
LinkedIn. Uh, I've been able to make contact either directly or or other folks in our cohort have, have made contact with everybody else, pretty much everybody else in our cohort. I've been gathering up emails. And so once one of my colleagues has a conversation with his wife, we're going to arrange a date through a doodle poll. So we're going to use the tools we use to arrange yeah. our meetings to find the best time. And then we'll have a Zoom where we're going to have everybody meet up. And I'm sure we're going to share our individual memories about Neil and we'll tell stories about him. And I'm sure that will create, provide great solace to us. And it'll be, of course, good to see everybody because I, I was thinking of organizing some kind of Zoom with those folks any, uh, mm-hmm. before this happened, just like I organized the, the Zoom with my friends from summer camp. I've done other things. So the practice we've got in the past few weeks will come in handy. And I, I know I know I'll feel better. I had a really good phone call with one of my friends from grad school yesterday when we were started to plan this thing out. And it's, you know, it's always good to see those folks. And I've kept in touch with most of them over the years. But it is good to have things like those social media tools that are at our disposal to to make contact with people that we haven't seen in a while. Like I, my office mate left the profession, uh, did never never did go into academia, but I was able to find her through LinkedIn. These these uh, social media assets are, are really useful in times like this. Exactly, and that reminds me of something else that you're launching next month, mm-hmm. which is CDSN related. You're launching a summer doctoral seminar in early June. So you're also converting the traditional graduate seminar to an online format. Yeah, the idea of this is that the current generation of PhD students who are doing defense and security stuff have probably lost their ability to connect with their friends and colleagues about their research. They are being denied the ability to go to conferences. Uh, Spring and summer is conference season. June is usually the time that there is the Canadian Political Science Association meeting, and there's the other Learneds, other other association meetings, uh, usually in June somewhere. And so the idea is to give a chance for the students who could really use connection to have a chance to meet every couple of weeks. And so what we're going to do is on one week, we're going to have conversations and question and answers about things like you know, how to get through the profession, how to get into conferences, how to do field work when you can't travel, basically professionalization type stuff about you know, how to, how to get through the, the business. And then the other weeks, we're going to have people present their research. So we'll meet every two weeks. And so once a month, we'll have a presenter on research. And once a month, we'll have a discussion of whatever topics people want to talk about. So every two weeks, we'll meet. And hopefully, it'll build a little community across Canada of people who do defense security stuff. We'll also include Canadians who are abroad. And we'll include people elsewhere who study Canada, but aren't Canadian. So goes back to that original question about how do we translate the name of the Canadian Defense and Security Network into French is uh, does the Canadian modify the research or does it modify the network and the answer is is, is kind of does both and so we'll include people who aren't here but study Canada as well as people who, who are here who study defense and security even if it's not necessarily on Canada if that makes any sense yeah it does and I think it's a good idea to to foster this community online over the summer. We do have long summer months, and if you're doing research in complete isolation, it can be difficult and it gives a a little community to keep you accountable towards your goals too and I know sometimes I use the summer to do writing retreats, and that's also been a bit harder because typically you would get together in a small group and spend half a day writing and just having other people around keeps you helps you keep uh, focused on your goals. So I think that the community is good for social reasons. I think professionally, it also keeps you accountable 
to your goals. And something else, in addition to students getting feedback on their research, is that they will get accustomed to presenting their research online. And I think that is a skill that we all need to practice and perfect right now, whether it's going to be the many, many online workshops and conferences that we're going to attend in the upcoming year. But many of us are, are converting our teaching to online or remote formats. So for PhD students, they might be teaching class for the first time this fall and this winter, and they'll have to do it online. Mm -hmm. So I think that the opportunity to practice over the summer is really good. And I'm really happy that you're organizing this. Of course, many of us will, will participate and our students will participate, but it took your leadership to get it started. And uh, so, so thank you for doing that. Much credit needs to go to Melissa Jennings, our, our podcast producer, because it was really her idea when we were brainstorming what we should be doing, what we can do for our students and what we should be, do, what the CDSN should be doing in this time where we can't organize physical events. We, we canceled our summer institute, which was aimed at uh, not just uh, academics, but policymakers and military officers and our postponed it, I should say. So we're looking for something to do. And Melissa came up with this idea. So our podcast producer is also a font of good ideas about other things. So much credit goes to her as well. Uh, let's start talking about the world. I yeah. guess the, one of the big topics these days is China. Neither of us can pretend to be a China expert, but there's lots of questions about how Canada should react to China, given that it has now been passing regulations that may violate the one country's two systems thing where Hong Kong was allowed to self-govern at least somewhat. And it also has gotten a lot of the blame for the outbreak of COVID. I guess the big question is given China has been rising for years now, but has now seemed to be on a par with the United States now that it seems to be a little bit more aggressive in what it's pushing forward. What's Canada to do? No, I, I think this is an important question. We, we keep on talking about how COVID-19 is impacting our, our work life and our day-to-day, -day, but it's also impacting international relations and, and geopolitics. And I don't know about you, but I'm what the themes I'm constantly seeing in the news or in op-eds are, first of all, is this a new Cold War? And this time the main contest is between China and the United States. The second theme, of course, is that COVID-19 will bring globalization to a halt. But I'm particularly interested by this new Cold War idea. As far as Canada's concerned, so far I felt like the tone was rather muted. What we're seeing now with the new national security law is more forceful criticism by the prime minister. Uh, we had already seen a change in tone over the couple of weeks. So I think that this contrast in the diplomatic style is, is certainly welcome. Yeah, the, I think the challenge is there's only so much we can do that, for instance, our pharmaceuticals depend on imports from China. And we found out that a lot of our PPE, of course, comes from China. And they've been trying to leverage the latter stages of this pandemic to try to get more influence. So they've been very generous in sharing with country PPE and ventilators and the like. And it turns out a lot of that stuff isn't all that well made. But it's really hard for Canada to try to go and do something more forceful because the leverage in this relationship is pretty one-sided. There's not a whole lot China needs from, from Canada, and Canada does need these supply chains to continue to function. There have been calls for Canada to become more independent in making things, but there's a limit to how much of that you can do. You can't really undo globalization because it would make some things much, much more expensive. 
And we're going to face a point in time where, yeah, there are going to be limits to how much we can spend. And there's some materials that simply don't exist in Canada. Uh, rare earth metals exist in North America to a certain degree, but the Chinese have more of them. And they're also more willing to mine them. And a lot of these materials, the mining of it is very, very damaging to the environment. And so we've thus far been quite willing for them to damage their environment rather than us to damage ours. So we face a lot of really difficult trade-offs where there's not an easy answer. And we can speak more forcefully. And countries are joining us in speaking more forcefully vis-a-vis -vis Hong Kong. But we can't forget that the Chinese still have a couple of Canadians held hostage. And maybe that will end with, as the extradition court case continues to go through the process, maybe the courts decide it for us by releasing Huawei executive. The other issue, mentioning, uh, speaking of Huawei, is that Prime Minister Trudeau has mentioned that there has not been a decision made, mm. but if we make a decision, it's not going to be based on retaliation against China. It's going to be more about securing Canadian telecommunications. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking in, again about the, the question through the prism of, of Canada and what Canada can do. And here, I think the, the parallel to the Cold War might be instructive in that in those kinds of strategic environments, Canada does have limited options. It falls into line usually with one block and, and that's more or less it. Maybe a, a better way of asking the question would be, should we think of the post-COVID-19 era as a fundamentally different strategic environment than the one we were in before? Mm -hmm. There's something that I was struck about when listening to Prime Minister Trudeau's speech last week about Canada's bid for a UN Security Council seat, he talked about the need to rebuild after the pandemic crisis, making a comparison to the end of World War II. That's mm -hmm. when institutions like the UN, Bretton Woods were set up and uh, NATO a bit later in 1949. But here it seems that uh, multilateral institutions have not been praised for their response to the crisis. And what we're seeing is, is the opposite. It's not a time of, of building of collective action. It's a time of, of retrenchment and multilateralism falling out of style. So I wonder what are the alternatives? So the Cold War environment doesn't give us much foreign policy latitude. Sure, you know, I take the point that it would be great if the post-COVID-19 environment led to renewed multilateralism, but that's really not what we're seeing now. So what would the alternatives be? I doubt the alternatives would fare much better. We keep on criticizing the WHO or other international organizations like the UN for having rather tepid responses to the pandemic. So what's the future looking like? Is it mini-lateralism? Yes. Well, that, that was something that my advisor once wrote about, Miles Kaler. Uh, it was an RA for one of his projects where he was talking about mini-lateralism as an alternative, or at least as a necessary ingredient that we don't usually make a lot of progress when 180 countries are around the table. But mm. we do when there's you know, 5, 10, or 20 who can then you know, set an agenda and then get others to join along. The old argument about you need a hegemon, you need one dominant player to, to make things work. I, I always believe you didn't need one dominant player to make things work, but you needed to have at least the one dominant player not be hostile to the effort. And so I think Canada can play a role helping to foster cooperation with the Germans, the Japanese, other countries that are still interested in multilateralism. It can only be successful if the United States is not undermining it. Mm -hmm. It can survive perhaps a Chinese undermining it or the Chinese trying to play it and spin it in their own way. Those efforts can't survive the hostility of both the United States and China. So that's one problem with having this whole metaphor of the new Cold War is that the old Cold War had the United States as a reliable ally that was making deals with everybody to try to and, and willing to bear a lot of the burden and pay some of the, the costs and tolerate 
the tariffs and other policies of their allies while they were recovering. Who's going to be tolerating some countries taking advantage of the situation or of, of protecting themselves now? I'm not sure anybody's going to be doing that, but if it, you know, maybe with a new election in the United States, that's possible. Maybe if the British can shake themselves out of the current situation that they're in, which is never very likely these days, maybe they could rejoin Europe, not necessarily in the EU, but at least be cooperating with the EU to make progress. Right now, they're not making any progress because the, the UK is too wrapped up in itself, but, you know, Merkel is going to leave the scene soon. And so the question is who in Germany is going to lead? So it's a really difficult time. And this new Cold War metaphor doesn't really work as well with China. I think it does kind of work well with the Russians because our playbook of having an alliance on its borders, of having tripwires in the country's neighboring, doing all that sort of stuff makes a lot of sense. But I'm not sure what is in the old Cold War playbook that works with China. One of the key components of the old Cold War playbook was to not trade with adversaries anything that was high tech that could be have dual uses. It's impossible to imagine right now trade, having a trading relationship with China where we suddenly decide that all of the advanced democracies of the world will not trade with China on things like telecommunications. Yeah, I mean, one way in which uh, the relationship with China could be reminiscent of the Cold War is through the, the prism of arms control. So you asked the question, but that comes to mind mostly because of Trump's announcement with regards to the Open Skies Treaty. So saying that the United States would withdraw from this treaty because Russia is not complying with the terms. Because people are focused on the Open Skies Treaty, they're also thinking about the impending deadline of the New START Treaty. So that's next February, February of 2021. And the American position is that, you know, this used to be a bilateral deal with Russia, but it should be extended. Those negotiations should be extended to China. So if you know, Trump and his team were to pull this off, we would see China becoming a part of the arms control system. But I think that there's very little appetite for that. Uh, and we're not going to see the kinds of arms control cooperation with these three countries, the United States, China, and Russia, as we did bilaterally between the Soviet Union and the United States throughout the Cold War. Yeah, I think that that's really interesting that we have a possibility. But the problem is, is that, again, not to harp on Trump too much, but the Trump government has been very hostile to any kind of arms control or any kind of international cooperation. Uh, we already have the Trump administration dropping out of the Open Skies Treaty, which is a, a no-brainer uh, from long ago of, you know, we have satellites so we can see what other countries are doing anyway, but this provides a confidence-building measure so that way things are a little less surprising, that we develop routines of cooperation, and the Trump administration is accusing the Russians of violating it, although it's whatever violations there are haven't been that significant. And given that the United States is a much more open society than the Russians are, the United States has always gotten a lot out of it compared to what the Russians get out of it. So it seems foolish, but it's part of a larger hostility to cooperation and, and arms control. And so for them suddenly to say, hey, we want a trilateral nuclear arms agreement, it doesn't seem very sincere. And it's not clear why the, the Chinese or the Russians would sign on to anything when the Trump record of bargaining has been pretty one-sided. Yeah, and, and China hasn't shown any predisposition to entertain that idea. Uh, they have much fewer nuclear weapons, too, so that the China position has been, well, let's wait until Russia and the United States bring down their arsenals to our level, and then mm -hmm. maybe we can talk about some kind of arms control treaty involving more than just Russia and the United States. But the environment doesn't seem to be right for that right now. What Russia has said is that it would agree to 
kind of automatic extension of, of the treaty. Uh, what I'm worried about is not just Trump's distaste for these types of treaties, but also because New START was signed under Obama, it's, an, uh, it's another Obama legacy that you know, he can just quickly get rid of. Yes, that's for political exactly, reasons. That's exactly one of the problems with this is is that Trump wants to have everything with his name attached to it. But it's harder to start things from scratch. It's harder to create new things. The history of arms control has always been about making incremental changes, building on the previous generation's worth of arms control. So going from the limited test ban treaty to the nuclear non-proliferation treaty to strategic arms limitation treaty, then SALT II, and then START, and then the intermediate nuclear force treaty. It's all been about building on the previous treaty. And pulling out of treaties is not a way to start building a new treaty system. I really think that there can be improvements made, that they could reduce their nuclear weapons to lower levels. I do think it makes sense at some point to include the Chinese and all this stuff, but this is not the way to start. Uh, and, and so it's very frustrating. I'm sure those who study people who focus their work on our arms control are probably pulling their hair out right now. Mm-hmm. Well, New START would effectively be the last one standing in terms of arms control treaties if, if we continue down this course. There were strong reactions as well from from NATO. So NATO ambassadors met on Friday. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, uh, European allies are quite concerned by this announcement. There's still a recognition on the part of, of uh, NATO countries that Russia hasn't been fully compliant with the treaty. But I think everyone wants to try to <laughs> work things out and get Russia to comply because this seems as a more promising alternative rather than just getting rid of another treaty. I think, again, the the allies are very frustrated because this is part of a larger uh, dynamic of being hostile to cooperation. And they know that getting out of these deals is not a positive step. And they're the ones who pay some of the price of uh, instability, of, of strategic instability. So they registered their concern. But again, it's one of these tricky things where this administration is just very determined to, to be hostile to this kind of thing. Why don't we return closer to home? The news out of the op laser is that our Canadian forces are now paying a higher price for this. They've been coming down with COVID uh, at a significant rate. Military folk who've been put into elder care homes in, in Ontario and Quebec, now I think we're around 28 or 30 have come down with COVID as a result of their efforts. Well, yeah, guess. this is very unfortunate. There's around 1,700 Canadian Armed Forces members right now working in these long-term care facilities in Quebec and Ontario. Uh, and you're right, we are seeing soldiers testing positive for, for COVID-19. Um, maybe it's to be expected when you're working directly or indirectly with infected patients or very exposed or in a high-risk environment. This news, I think, will lead to greater scrutiny on, on the training. Uh, that's being given to the Canadian Armed Forces members who are being asked to deploy as part of Op Laser and working in these long-term care facilities. Uh, there are different categories of PPE that these soldiers can can don. And so there's always a risk assessment to see what kind of situation you're deploying to and then what kind of PPE you will need. And then they are given training on how to properly wear that PPE or how to dispose of it safely. So I think that uh, this recent news will lead to just a, a, maybe a revisiting what those measures are and whether or not they're adequate. I was thinking about that. I was taking the training myself 
because I'm attending a change of command ceremony on Saturday. And so if you are going to be on a Canadian Armed Forces facility, you really need to, to pay attention to those, those guidelines and take the training yourself. And there are different categories of risk. And of course, uh, you have to be, to be prepared and understand uh, what the ramification of, of any gathering might be in terms of uh, personal protection, but also appropriate behavior. So I suppose that there are going to be a lot of conversations about that, whether current measures are as good as they should be. COVID-19 is also affecting operations. I know we have a handful of people uh, from the Canadian Armed Forces deployed in UN missions. So the UN, as a preventive measure, had frozen rotations of troops until the end of June so as not to spread the virus. But what we're seeing emerge in the news now are rumors, whether in, in South Sudan, in the DRC, and elsewhere, people are reportedly scared of Western peacekeepers who are seen as likely carriers of the virus. And, and of course, these are rumors that could affect operations. The activities haven't resumed as they normally uh, would, you know, when it comes to patrols or the activities uh, of these missions, there are special measures that have been taken and adapted to, to meet this post COVID-19 or this COVID-19 environment. Uh, but you're seeing a little bit of friction uh, here as uh, peacekeepers now are, are being met with suspicion. And there's some history to this, which is that the UN was suspe- forces were suspected of being responsible for, was it cholera in Haiti? Cholera outbreak in Haiti. Yeah, and uh, in the past, when there was outbreaks of you know, sexually transmitted diseases around peacekeeping forces in a variety of places, so I wouldn't blame the folks uh, near these peacekeeping operations for being suspicious. Thus far, the record of African countries handling pandemic looks a lot better in general than compared to you know, what the, you know, the United States, Italy, Spain, uh, a lot of European countries have handled the pandemic. So I think that their fears are legitimate. And so the UN's going to have to go a long ways to convincing uh, the populations that they're trying to secure that they are being responsible. Uh, going back to the Canadian case, you know, is, is 28 members of the CAF, is that a high or low number for the experience, you know, the, the environment they're experiencing, it might seem, might be low. Because if you think about all the nurses and doctors in New York and Italy and Spain and elsewhere who've fallen victim to this, it might be that even with really rigorous practices with the PPE, you can still catch the stuff. Or it could be that, you know, these soldiers were not adequately trained. So we need to know a little bit more about the risks and figure out whether this was a high number or a low number to be able to assess really have we done a good job of this. But of course, this raises a a related issue, which is, should these soldiers, should these troops get uh, hazard pay? And I think the easy answer to that is, hell yeah, putting them into places where the harm is greater. And we know that while this disease doesn't kill younger people at the same rate it kills older people, the supposed mild case of this, when you have a mild case, you can still have severe pneumonia. And we do not yet know the long-term consequences of having a COVID infection. So I, th- I think the answer is pretty easy. Now, I, my guess is that they will move towards having it, having p- hazard pay for these these troops in these nursing homes. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree. As is often the case, Steve, when we talk about the virus, things get uh, grim quite fast. So how about we lighten things up again for okay. the end of the show? And maybe we can talk about the banter that happened on Twitter yesterday. I think 
you posted a picture of us during our photo shoot for this podcast, one where we look super happy. And so folks started to tease us and I guess said that we were looking like we were advertising a morning show. Well, I think that uh, to Phil Lagasse in particular thought that he, <laughs> that he was looking forward to the Steve and Steph morning show or military yeah. mornings with, uh, with Steph and Steve. That's right. I, I don't know if either of us could keep up the battle rhythm of having a morning program. <laughs> First of all, are you a morning person, Steve? I actually am. I am. But I think that, uh, are you a morning person? Uh, I'll be honest, interacting with other people is not usually part of my early morning routine. <laughs> <laughs> More the point, uh, I think you already take on too much. So the whole idea having... A, a daily show added to your life, I think it's not something that, that uh, is something that you're, you're welcome. No, no. So big shout out to Phil Lagasse and Chris Ankerson for, for this banter on Twitter. But I think bringing a late night show flavor to the podcast <laughs> might be fun. <laughs> it might happen too if we start to travel again and we have to record while in different time zones. You know, if I'm calling from Belgium and you're back in Ottawa or vice versa, uh, then one of us will be co-hosting a late night show anyway. <laughs> Uh, yes, hopefully not from a NATO dance party because what happens at a NATO dance party stays at a NATO dance party. <laughs> I think it only happens in Poland. <laughs> 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 I've not seen any of those anywhere else just in Warsaw a few years back after one of those uh, summit sideshow events. Speaking of Belgium, (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm really excited to share my interview with Isabelle Francois, the president of Women in International Security Belgium. Uh, We had a surprising number of things in common. Isabelle did her PhD at Université de Montréal, like me. And I noticed, because you're in people's living rooms now through Zoom, that she has a piano. So we both play the (laughs) piano, it seems. We talked about the challenges of running a network, in her case, WISE, during COVID-19, a theme that, Steve, you and I have talked a lot about in recent weeks. And she also talked about the kind of leadership that is optimal in these times of crisis. There's a lot that's been said on the need to lead with compassion. So leaders like Angela Merkel and Isinda Aldern have been held in high regard in terms of how they've handled the, the crisis. And she explored this concept in a blog post, this concept of leading with compassion. Mm-hmm. So we can share that in the show notes. That's why the, the episode is called uh, Leading with Compassion. It's alluding to, to that article she, she wrote and uh, part of our conversation in today's interview. And I think that towards the end of the show, you also have some R&R recommendations. Yes. Uh, although the funny thing is, is they will have a mixed portrayal of compassion because one of them is a zombie movie. <laughs> you can make that work, I'm sure. I'm sure I can make it work. Well, I thank you for your time again, Stephanie. It was It's always great to talk to you. One of the secrets of the podcast is it forces you to talk to me every two weeks. <laughs> and that's that's a delight in my life. And it's something that's helped me get through the madness of the past few weeks. Good luck hanging out with your boys outside. I look forward to talking to you in, in two weeks when we're actually in June of all months. I know. And I have a special request for your next R&R for the next one in, in two weeks. I, re- I have really been living vicariously through this segment as you've introduced <laughs> it. <laughs> but I saw that there's this new Netflix sitcom uh-huh. with Steve Carell that's launching, I think, on Friday called Space Force. 
Oh, and yes. it's about a U.S. general tasked with launching a new branch of the armed forces. Sounds oddly familiar. And so I really want you to feature a review, a review of that sitcom next time we, we speak on this podcast. Well, I want, that's one option. The other is we could uh, tape a live watching of it while we're enjoying our favorite uh, cocktails. Uh, <laughs> that sounds fun too. Anything with Steve Carell and John Malkovich, I'm, I'm all over. I really look forward to, to checking that out on Friday. And Steve, in the meantime, stay safe for me too. Talking to you every two weeks brings a rhythm to this kind of COVID work environment that seems very unstable, unpredictable, and where there's way too much Zoom. So it's nice to talk to you every two weeks to see how you're doing and just to catch up on things. But every morning would be too much. Every morning would definitely <laughs> be too much. That'll probably be too much, Steve, in your life. <laughs> I will comment on that. <laughs> All right. Be well, and we'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon, Steve. Good afternoon, Stephanie. I'm Isabel Francois, and uh, I am the new president of WISE Brussels. I am a Canadian, but I have been uh, in Brussels for now close to 20 years on and off. So it's a pleasure for me to talk to you today about WISE Brussels. Thank you so much for being on Battle Rhythm. Isabelle, you are joining me online from Brussels. You are, like most of us, working from home. In January, you became the president of Women in International Security Brussels, so belated congratulations. Let me start first by asking you how you've approached this important leadership task. Yeah, that came to me uh, a little bit as a surprise, I have to say, uh, when I was approached last fall. And I thought this was just uh, an amazing opportunity. I have been working in the, in the field of security for just about 30 years now. But WISE had for me a different ring to it in a sense that it was allowing me to, to also use my expertise in terms of leadership coaching. And it was really an opportunity to experience this leadership work I had done. It was a very interesting time too. In fact, I came to WISE and my first approach to WISE was really about the community and, you know, trying to figure out who we were. Of course, I had a, a vision as to uh, where I wanted to, to take WISE myself in terms of my own approach. But I was very interested in finding out uh, what the community needed. Who was WISE Brussels, you know? And uh, it was difficult, actually, at first to get members to really come up with a very quick answer to who was wise. And so we launched a, a sort of internal inner brainstorming, so to speak, to figure out, you know, who the community was, what was really making them tick and, you know, how they were networking, how they were with each other. And that was a really interesting experience. So I was really intrigued by what you said about leadership coaching uh, just for those of us uh, listening who are less familiar with that, can you tell me just a bit more about that part of your background, which, which I'm sure was very helpful in that whole background exercise that you did to I 
to figure out the identity of the network? Yes. So I spent about three years in uh, in my career in Washington, and uh, that was a time where I was working with think tanks, and, and I had time to also in, invest in something that I had been interested in for a long time, leadership. And I did uh, a lot of work on coaching. And of course, coaching is very much an approach whereby you don't tell people what to do. You don't train. You just start from the premise that people have in themselves, you know, all of the answers and you just help them come to terms with what is their contribution, their potential, who they are at, at heart and discover for themselves the, the extent of their inner wisdom and their what they can contribute to the world. So that's my approach very much also in joining WISE in terms of leading from from a place of less listening and mm-hmm. from a place of finding a, a resonance between myself as a leader and the community and see, you know, how we could move together. It's a, it's a very nice and interesting process and one that has really been beneficial for us wise in the first few months. It's only been not even six months. <laughs> so right. it's early days. <laughs> Indeed. Let me ask you about your first experience with WISE or Women International Security. It started as an American network, so I imagine your first encounter with WISE was in Washington, D.C., especially given that you work there? Yes, indeed. I was working for a think tank community and also the academic network uh, in Washington, and uh, I was invited on a, on a number of occasions I must say, I was really struck by the environment, you know, how important it was for WISE Global to network and to connect with professional women. And and this was really uh, an interesting experience in terms of, you know, finding out, you know, all these women that actually share similar views than my own in the field of security. And, And, you know, it was really inspiring for me. So, you know, when I came back to Brussels and, and, uh, met with a number of uh, members of Wise Brussels and I was of course intrigued about what they were doing and you know there when they approached me to put my name forward as for the post of president I was immediately positively predisposed let's put it this way so I, I can't help but think back on my own experience as you mentioned this because to me encountering Wise in Washington DC and I was a graduate student at the time was really an aha moment and it was difficult for me to understand why this kind of network hadn't emerged already in Canada and I think one thing that's very interesting about the whole Wise community is that yes you do have that first branch that emerged in DC but then you have multiple chapters in different countries and in different cities they all have their own identity so I was curious what sets Wise Brussels apart in terms of its membership and the needs of the community you know the uh, the Brussels bubble, so to speak, is quite a diverse environment. Obviously, uh, we have the big institutions, EU, NATO, that are very central to our work uh, when it comes to security. But I think that it's it's a much wider audience. You have beyond the concentration of diplomats, military personnel, you 
you have a large number of experts, you know, with a lot of think tanks. And you also have self-employed, you know, consultants. And then you have the whole student community, which has been also uh, an interesting aspect of the work of Wise Brussels. And in fact, uh, this has come really, came out really clearly in the brainstorming that we did in the, at the beginning of the year, you know, in terms of finding out who we were. Wise Brussels is really, I would say, a community of experts that are professionals in the field of security and that are really committed to making sure that women's voices are heard, you know, in foreign and security policies. And this is a community that's really tight in terms of supporting each other and empowering each other and the, and the younger members. And it really is also very much about networking in terms of developing connections harnessed by technology. And especially nowadays where we are all working from home, mm. it is very much also a platform to broker new ways, so to speak, to try to find a safe space for all these professionals to talk about things that sometimes sets them apart. And so it's really developing an interest in informal discussions, providing a platform to bridge the gap. You know, the, the world has been really polarized, you know, in the last several years. And it's really about uh, helping people come to terms with their differences and uh, talk to one another where it is not always possible in formal setting. So I would say that, yeah, Brussels, wise Brussels is in a way a, a strong community, a strong network, but also interested in this platform to broker new ways. Like, as you said, you know, I've met with people from various chapters. I mean, over 40 uh, chapters worldwide, that's a lot of people. Mm. Uh, but, and they all have really very different focus. You know, I, I have seen some of them more focused on UN Resolution 1325, others more on networking, others more on student and helping develop professional mentoring and training of younger women to become professionals in their own right. Absolutely. And these aren't normal times. Uh, so right now we've had to do a lot of adjustments, whether it's with regards to our work or with our families uh, because of social distancing measures. But in normal times, <laughs> if we think back, let's say to, to <laughs> last year at the beginning of the year, what types of events does WISE Brussels put on? Can you give us a few examples of the types of activities that you provide to the, to the members as part of your quote-unquote regular programming? Sure. So there is a very strong mentoring and training program. That's really a big part of what we do every year. Then you also have uh, the pure networking activities, like we have happy uh, hours and we have, so we gather and uh, exchange on various um, topics uh, of interest to the community. And then we have more formal events. We usually partner with other think tanks. So we've done a number of things with uh, various think tanks in, in town. 
and uh, it could be it varies from you know events on 1325 to things that are more based on security issues writ large so if events of various types it is of obviously often on gender-based issues but not exclusively. So that's basically what we do, those three types of activities, training, networking, and events. I'm just curious, but have men been participating as well? Have they been engaged in the network? Yes, yes, definitely. In fact, when I uh, came on board, that was one of the things that I was interested in in developing further as well. We have in Wise Brussels, we have uh, a steering committee that is based on volunteers and who really are the heart of putting the the activities together. There's also an advisory group which is uh, helping us steer in terms of what are the core issues in the field of security and we have a number of men on that advisory committee. But it is something that in my own view would, would need to be beefed up a little. In my own experience, you know, men have been often a champion of having a woman voice around the decision-making table. And I think that's something that we definitely want to encourage uh, further. You mentioned earlier how you have defined Wise Brussels as the result of a collective introspective exercise. And I think that's really useful for getting people on board and for explaining very succinctly what the mission of Wise Brussels might be. But does that message differ when you're talking to women uh, versus men? So when you're trying to solicit the participation of male colleagues, for instance, is the way that you describe Wise Brussels different? No, not really. You know, we were discussing, I had this recent discussion with uh, one of our uh, new member of the advisory committee, and we were basically talking with him about, you know, the result of our inner brainstorming and, you know, what was Wise Brussels and how he could help us pitch that message to the wider audience. You know, the way I present it to him was exactly the way I discussed it uh, with you earlier on. And I think uh, it does resonate very much. You know, in, in that particular case, our member of the advisory committee is from the military forces. And, and, you know, he's had his own experience with the importance of a woman voice around the table or many women voices around the table. Yeah. And it is a very valuable element of society, obviously, and therefore of uh, decision making writ large. So I think, no, the, the, there is no difference in pitching it to uh, a man or a woman audience. As a network, you've had to adapt to this mostly online environment. Can you tell me how a network like Wise Brussels can thrive when we are all confined to our home? Yes, definitely. that's definitely <laughs> an important issue. I have to say that, you know, we were all taken aback, you know, uh, at first, not quite sure how to uh, adjust. Because frankly, as I said, you know, here is a very vibrant community. We meet with one another regularly and in a very informal setting. I mean, I often have uh, the steering committee in my own home, uh, we just gather a lot and just that's part of how, how we function. So all of a sudden, you know, not being able to get together uh, was really challenging. So we adapted. The first thing that we did was to uh, get a Zoom account. <laughs> and and then we we started with a basic checking in to make sure that everybody was okay. And that 
was not only for the steering committee, the 15 of us that, you know, are constantly coordinating with one another, but also with our members. And we started doing some check-in calls with our members to see what was their experience of, you know, teleworking and the whole gamut of issues under lockdown that came up for them. And that was absolutely fascinating and actually very beneficial. I think that the, that's where we could really get a full sense of the importance of the community in Wise Brussels and how, you know, bottom-up approaches are really fundamental. Quickly, you know, through all of this checking in and all of this community discussions, we a lot of ideas came to the fore and we started doing new types of training like for instance resilience became a really hot topic and so we offered some training online very quickly and then we, uh, we also offer things on leadership because basically what we're seeing at time of crisis is that the world has shifted and it's a question mark as to whether leadership has shifted with it and so we do a little bit of reflection on that as well. So, yeah, we've adapted our means of gathering and uh, working with one another. But of course, the core of what we do remains the same. It's still about networking, about training, about mentoring. And events are going to be done online mostly in the, in the coming weeks and, and months. I think that it is also something that people find increasingly comfortable it allows them to do a lot more from home and to save time and yes it's uh, it's been a very interesting experience i must say and one that will likely stay with us well beyond this covid-19 crisis well it's not easy to build trust online and trust is such an integral component of networks like wise brussels but it sounds like you've found some strategies to to cope quite well I thought that, yes, indeed, I think that the challenge of trust is really important. I have noticed myself, you know, in uh, working online increasingly with my colleagues and with members more broadly, is that uh, it is essential to really come with an intention, with authenticity, with the way you come across online is very different than the way you come across face-to-face. -face. So you really need to have a, a real intention with how you want to come across, how you reach out to people. You, you have to compensate for the fact that we are uh, you know, in a virtual world when we are on Zoom or, uh, or otherwise. So I think it's, uh, it's one that, especially for, for uh, leaders, but not exclusively, I think it's one that uh, requires a particular awareness as to the importance of uh, contact and the importance of compensating for that. Uh, we are social animals and we need that connection and we need to get out of our way to actually ensure that that is the case. We have a lot of means of communication, but we don't necessarily use them knowingly. Like for instance, I find emails and so on to be what we used to have, but you know, frankly, it's a lot more important nowadays to see each other. So, you know, whether it's Skype, Zoom, or, or whatever means you want to use, I mean, seeing people is very important. Hearing voices is very important. So 
emails uh, will go only so far. What I've noticed too with platforms like Zoom is that it provides multiple ways of participation. So in face-to-face uh, interactions when we have public events, very often what you'll notice is a lot of men taking to the floor and asking the questions. What I've noticed with Zoom is that people can both participate by, by speaking, raising their, their hands virtually, but they can also use the, the chat function. So in many ways, mm-hmm. I've found the, the conversations very stimulating and yeah, I agree. Yeah. I also uh, noticed that uh, you, you published quite a bit during this period, and there's a particular article uh, that is very relevant for, for this time. It's called Leading with Compassion Emerging Lessons from COVID 19. We'll include the link to this article in our show notes. But what inspired you to write this piece? Actually, discussions among ourselves. I uh, was discussing with the vice president, Marta Martinelli, who'd been also working from home, teleworking, but having to deal with coworkers and having an experience of leadership that was begging a number of questions in terms of how do we adjust in this period of crisis. And we were discussing how the context of business continuity and trying to continue to perform for many of our institutions was certainly important, but had to be balanced with a more personal touch. And we were wondering, you know, uh, how we could help in developing greater awareness for leadership around us so that the need of having a more personal contact between employers and employees, between leaders and followers, and our members were very clear that they were craving for having just a simple, how are you doing? You know, Mm. how is it to work at home with kids all around? You know, we have many nationalities in Brussels and Marta was particularly struck with a lot of her colleagues uh, from Italy who were having like really challenging family situations. And frankly, their mental emotional space was limited in terms of delivering in business continuity mode. And so uh, the two of us decided that uh, we, we needed to write something. We needed to just for the sake of a greater awareness, reflecting on the kind of leadership that we see around us. And, and there are some really great positive examples, but uh, you know, we certainly have, I'm sure you've read a lot about feminine leadership nowadays uh, mm-hmm. as coming to the for strongly, whether in terms of leadership with compassion or whether empathy, all these words that come come across uh, these days. And this uh, idea of leading with compassion, I don't think has necessarily been expressed with as much clarity as is the case in your article, but certainly there's been a lot of coverage on Merkel and Ardern in, in New Zealand. And it seems that those examples are held in high standards and they happen to be uh, female examples of leadership. Uh, I'm wondering if in your research for this piece that you were all also able to identify some other examples of leadership, are we really equating compassionate leadership with female leadership here. Do you see in that piece that we wrote, that's not our view, but uh, I think that we feel that often uh, an equation between female leadership and be it with compassion or empathy or whatever, 
as being somewhat weak. And that's one thing that, I, uh, you know, I was listening to an interview from uh, Yacinda Arden from New Zealand, Prime Minister, who was actually saying that uh, she had a lot of criticism on her style as being weak. Mm -hmm. And she was really aggravated by that, the, this whole approach because indeed compassion is certainly not weak. First and foremost, compassion requires action and compassion requires, you know, acting on it, being proactive, certainly leading with kindness, paying attention to various voices in society, but actually developing solutions. And it's a, it's a particular use of power, simply in a different way with different goals and different intentions and tools. But I think that it is about empowering others. It is about uh, searching for new ways and certainly taking risks often to innovate. So it is certainly not about soft feminine leadership as we might read here and there. And leading with compassion is particularly salient and, and relevant in the context of the COVID-19 crisis, but it certainly resonates more broadly in terms of international security themes. For me, your article really evokes concepts of inclusive security, human security, and women, peace, and security. I think that what you lay out in the article for this vision of leadership is very important for the implementations of those security concepts. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit further on that point. Finding the right balance is not easy. I mean, the success rate uh, in terms of introducing diversity, inclusiveness, and equality in, in organizations, companies, and various workplaces is often limited to reports, issuing reports, and you know, agreeing to a number of principles. But really, the so the proof is in the pudding on this. Uh, you mm -hmm. really, you know, working with those principles and finding that right balance that ensure that everybody feels included that you have a safe workplace is really not easy. And I think that it is fundamental, though, in terms of inclusiveness, you know, the more inclusive you are as a community, the more collaborative, the more cooperative and innovative you're going to be as a community. So it's not only about diversity or inclusiveness per se, but it's also about what you're going to deliver as, as a diverse and inclusive environment. And it's also challenging, as you were mentioning, in, in terms of security. And it's challenging in the sense that the more diverse a community is, the more uh, sources of conflict you're going to see rising. But again, it's about balance. And where is the right place where you allow for disagreement to come to the fore and you allow for different views to be taken into consideration and for different views to be expressed and valued so that you actually keep the balance with having a safe workplace where everybody feels valued and heard. It's about organizational culture. It's about having a safe workplace and a safe place writ large, you know, where we can express ourselves and be heard. Yes. And in a sense, leading with compassion brings up something you mentioned at the very beginning, which is adopting a listening stance, because it is 
also about identifying the unique or distinct needs of various groups within that diverse community that, that you mentioned. So it's coming full circle. Yes. And I would say, uh, Stephanie, you know, one point that I did not address specifically, but which is important. I think that compassion is by no means exclusively a woman trait. My career in the field of security, uh, especially the first part of my career was very much, you know, among men. And frankly, I was often uh, the only woman around. At the time, you know, I, I didn't even see it as uh, anything particular. You know, I wouldn't, I was not necessarily aware of it, but I certainly have found compassion around me. The association between women and compassion is, you know, wrongly uh, pictured often. And I think that the only difference is that women may have an easier time coming out wearing their vulnerability, whereas society has made it so that, you know, it's not as easy for men to show their vulnerability and come from a place of compassion. But, you know, we all grew up with phrase of uh, uh, boys don't cry, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think that is part of the strongly anchored beliefs in society that made it so that vulnerability is not the first thing that will come across in a man leader. But I think that there is absolutely no reason why uh, men would not lead with compassion. That's been certainly my experience. Yeah, I, I think having more conversations about it will help break down some of these gender-based stereotypes. And you mentioned organizational culture before, the institutions also have to value this brand of leadership for it to be encouraged and, and for it really to be able to have an impact on the day-to-day -day activities of, of an organization. So it, it does take time to change the mindset, but I think that the examples that we're seeing now certainly help in showing why leader, leading with compassion is, is important and maybe in time, institutionally, it will be a more valued model of leadership. Yes, I would agree. Uh, Isabelle, j'ai une dernière question, mais je vais la poser en français. Vous avez passé une partie de votre carrière à Montréal, à l'Université de Montréal, pour être précise. Comment est-ce que ce passage universitaire a influencé votre parcours professionnel, celui qui vous a amené jusqu'à Bruxelles? Ah, C'est vrai, je crois effectivement, Stéphanie, qu'on euh, a toutes les deux un passage à l'Université de Montréal. Euh, donc, euh, oui. Euh, maintenant, comment est-ce que ça a influencé ma carrière? Je crois que euh, ce n'est pas une question facile, parce que je crois qu'en début de carrière, on a tous... Euh, une certaine vision de ce qu'on veut faire et, et il était très clair euh, pour moi que les relations internationales seraient euh, le domaine euh, dans lequel je, je, je travaillerais euh, mais je n'avais absolument aucune idée de ce qui m'attendait <rire> et donc euh, je pense que euh, par contre mon passage à Montréal euh, a été vraiment important euh, ça a été euh, d'abord euh, culture. J'ai commencé, hein, j'ai fait ma maîtrise à Ottawa, à l'université de Carleton. C'était vraiment important pour moi de faire mon doctorat en, en français. Et donc, d'abord, je, je, quand je suis arrivée euh, à Carleton, je, bon, je parlais anglais, mais euh, je devais euh, m'améliorer. Et donc, c'était nettement, euh, c'était pas, pas uniquement plus facile pour moi de faire ma, mon doctorat en français, mais c'était vraiment euh, important culturellement pour moi. Et donc, euh, 
ça, cela m'a amené, m'a ramené néanmoins à Ottawa. Euh, j'ai commencé ma carrière en fait euh, à l'Agdi, hein, à contrat. Et donc, euh, l'agence de coopération et de développement international a été pour moi le début de ma carrière. Et j'étais, à, à vrai dire, une spécialiste de l'Afrique. Euh, j'ai fait ma, ma thèse de doctorat sur l'Afrique et, et donc euh, sur les questions de sécurité. Mais bon, j'ai commencé à, à l'Agdi et euh, je suis rentrée et tout s'est fait alors vraiment de manière, euh, c'est vraiment des concours de circonstances à chaque fois. C'est pour ça que j'ai dit, euh, c'est assez difficile <rire> de voir comment l'Université de Montréal m'a vraiment euh, amenée à cette carrière. Je crois que euh, pour être vraiment juste, euh, quand les étudiants me posent cette question, c'est toujours la même réponse. Euh, j'aimerais bien pouvoir dire que ma vision était vraiment la meilleure et que j'y suis arrivée. Mais non, euh, en fait, un concours de circonstances, euh, en tant que spécialiste de l'Afrique, euh, je me suis retrouvée à travailler euh, à, à la Défense, au, euh, au ministère de la Défense, parce qu'on était en pleine période euh, de, euh, des opérations Rwanda, Burundi, et c'était des années euh, 90, et on avait besoin à D&D d'un, d'un, d'une spécialiste de l'Afrique. Et donc, je suis rentrée euh, euh, à la Défense tout à fait euh, par hasard, enfin par hasard, oui, concours de circonstances. Et donc, euh, et de là, ça n'a, ça n'a été que des concours de circonstances. <rire> euh, encore une fois, au ministère, c'était une période où il y avait énormément de coupures de personnel et euh, je me suis retrouvée à faire l'Afrique, puis l'Europe, puis l'Europe de l'Est, puis, <rire> puis plein de choses. Et donc, euh, et très vite, euh, euh, j'ai dû euh, faire... Euh, couvrir toutes les ministérielles qu'on avait à l'OTAN euh, parce que j'avais euh, les langues qu'il fallait et, et donc je, je me suis retrouvée à, à l'OTAN vraiment euh, par hasard quoi, c'était pas, et, pas du tout prémédité mais enfin bon, il y avait une certaine logique à tout ça et voilà, donc euh, c'est un peu comme ça que, que je me suis profilée dans ma carrière mais je dois dire que euh, mon passage à Montréal et, euh, et à Ottawa, quelque part, euh, ont été très, très formateurs parce que c'était une période pour moi où euh, il y avait beaucoup d'ouverture sur les étudiants interna- internationaux. Sur, il y avait énormément de possibilités et ça a été vraiment très formateur. Donc, euh, de ce point de vue, oui, je pense que euh, cela m'a beaucoup apporté dans ma carrière qui était essentiellement internationale. J'ai, j'ai beaucoup... J'ai, j'ai eu des, des postes euh, dans plein de pays, plein de différents continents et, et je crois que euh, ce multiculturalisme que j'ai vécu dans mes années d'étudiante était vraiment euh, essentiel et c'est, ça a été, oui, un, un avantage énorme dans ma carrière. Donc, si je comprends bien, il n'y a pas de formule magique pour euh, obtenir une carrière internationale. C'est une question mmh. qu'on, j'entends souvent dans le, le contexte des événements de WISE, des étudiantes qui demandent comment est-ce qu'on fait pour percer à l'OTAN, à l'ONU, pour avoir une carrière internationale. Et euh, plus, plus j'entends les réponses à cette question de, de gens comme vous, plus euh, je me rends à l'évidence qu'il y a beaucoup de concours de circonstances. Oui, absolument. Et je crois que ça continue parce que <rire> je, je vois euh, m, m, la façon dont j'ai été approchée pour, pour ce poste de présidente à, de WISE Bruxelles, euh, c'est aussi un concours de circonstances. <rire> Donc, je crois que c'est, euh, c'est la dominante, oui. 
Alors, mais merci d'avoir passé du temps avec moi aujourd'hui. I'll go back to English now to, to thank you once again for being on Battle Rhythm and for making some time for us today. It's been a pleasure, Stephanie. It's been really nice and interesting to, to get to know you and to do something with you. It's uh, really uh, my pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much and stay safe. On this week's R&R segment, I have some zombie-specific recommendations and then one not so zombie-related. My wife and I watched The Train to Busan. It's a Korean movie, so it involves subtitles, unless you're fluent in Korean, about a father and a daughter trying to get from Seoul to Busan on, tra on a train in the middle of a zombie outbreak. And so, yes, it's zombies on a train. And it's really good. It's, it's very thrilling. There's a lot of tension. There's some humor and there's even some social commentary because yes, there's class politics and a little bit of xenophobia on a train on the way to Busan. So I recommend that very highly. Uh, it's on, I want to say Netflix. The second is Santa Clarita Diet. It's a TV show that was on for three years with Tim Oliphant and Drew Barrymore. And it's about a family where one member of the family becomes a zombie, but a very functional zombie. And how do they manage to stay alive How do they make, keep her fed? And how do they keep their secret, despite the fact they live next door to police officers? And alas, it got canceled, but you have three full seasons of a very delightful show, a Southern Californian show about a zombie outbreak. And I think it's uh, quite delightful. The third is a uh, change of pace is Culture of Military Organizations. It is by an edited volume by Peter Manser and William, Williamson Murray. And this is a change of pace for me because it's historians talking about organizational culture. And I'm only partway through it, but I've learned much about the culture of the Union Army in the American Civil War and the Confederate Army during the American Civil War. But it also has Germany. It has India. Uh, it has the British with a really great line about the British Army, which is that they have to be destroyed in the first three months of every war they start or every war they join. Um, And so I'm finding the history of each of these situations very fascinating. And I'm also finding it very interesting to see how historians study these things, because I've looked at them mostly by how political scientists study organizational culture. And it's not exactly the same. Uh, and I've learned a lot from the way they think about this sort of thing. So those are my three recommendations for this week. The Train to Busan, Santa Clarita Diet, and the Culture of Military Organizations. Thank you. Have a great couple of weeks. Enjoy the better weather and be well. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to CDSN.RCDS at Outlook.com.